going to be beginning in verse 22. You'll find that on page 984 in the Pew Bible if you'd like to use that Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to take that Bible home as your own. And as you're finding your way to Colossians, I do want to just extend my family's um, gratitude to you for your love and support for us um, and this ministry that God has called us to now uh, for going on, uh, I guess, uh, coming up on nine years now. And so we praise God for this church. It is um, far more than, than a job. It's, it's far more than a, even a ministry for us. It is, it is our family. It is our, it's our home. And uh, we're so thankful to be here with you. And as I tell you, as, um, when I think of it, I'm, I'm a member of Hamilton Baptist Church, and my ministry is pastoring, and um, I'm a member first. I believe that to be true, and I think you're a member, and you have this ministry, and you might have that ministry over there, but uh, what a grace it is to be in this family, and uh, we, we do not take it for granted. We thank God for it. We do uh, appreciate your prayers, by the way. We will be, uh, as Josh mentioned, um, driving about 10,000 miles over the next five weeks with eight children in one vehicle, um, so... Uh, I chiefly pray that I come back a married man, and so uh, uh, it will be a blessing to me um, that God grows us in patience even as he unites us together as a family, as we'll be spending most of our uh, night camping in tents and uh, doing what we love and seeing what God has made, even as we become reacquainted with family members across this country. So we're delighted to be able to do so. So here we are in Colossians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 22. Colossians 3, verse 22. Hear now the word of God. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word now in which we can consider and pray that you would guide us. This is somewhat of an unusual text, isn't it, before us? And yet uh, I trust there is much for us to learn and much for us to apply. And so will you be help, help us to be careful in doing so, um, that our understanding of it would be in accordance with truth, and our application of it in our lives would be fair and appropriate. And so we pray especially for guidance as we uh, seek to learn how to live this Christian life with the verses in front of us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the year 1798 when... A new board game was introduced to the United States. It's called the New Game of the Human Life. It was the moves of this game were based upon virtue and vice. And so if you uh, committed virtue in the game, your, your path sped up. If you committed vice, your path slowed down. Parents were encouraged to play this game with their children for the purpose of the game was, I quote, life is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death. God is at the helm and your reward lies beyond the grave. In 1860, Milton Bradley purchased the rights to the game, renamed it the checkered game of life. The fast path in the game now was a a path of honesty and bravery. The slow path was the path of idleness and disgrace. 
The, the moral of the game was seeking to teach, it seemed, that was hard work would lead to a successful life. Bradley would write of the game, it is a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both old and young with the spirit of friendly competition. He evidently didn't play board games in my house. Right? <laughs> 100 years later, 1960, it was revised once again, now called The Game of Life, sold 35 million copies. Vice and virtue by this point had become non-existent to the game. You simply earn money to buy furniture and support a family. The winner of the game rides on what the game calls the Day of Reckoning, and the one who wins has the most money on the Day of Reckoning. In other words, the lesson now is that the Day of Reckoning is not a problem as long as you are rich. In 2011, it was revised one more time. Uh, this time, you get rewarded for doing whatever you want to do. You get as many points for donating a kidney as going scuba diving. The game's description now is simply do whatever it takes to retire in style. And it describes, doesn't it, the changes in the West. God has been dismissed. Virtue and vice have been dismissed. Even hard work over idleness or courage over cowardice no longer seems to matter. After all, life is now about you. You do whatever you want. Remember, the original game says your reward comes after this life. You live with eternity in view. Now, we're simply the great goal for us presented in, in, in this culture is to live for retirement. And not simply a, a productive retirement, by the way, but do whatever it takes to retire in style. So I wonder, is that your goal? Is that how you're playing this game of life that you live day by day? Are you living for a nice, comfortable retirement? There is, of course, an alternative understanding of what life is about. It's found for us in Colossians chapter 3. We have been studying this book for now a number of months, as you know. We began in chapter 1 and saw that Christ is the creator of all things, and he is the sustainer of all things. He is the ruler of all things. He is the redeemer of all who trust in him. He has been nailed to the cross, we saw in chapter 2. He has paid our debt. He has disarmed the authorities which stood in opposition to us. Therefore, be a loving husband. Therefore, be a submissive wife. Therefore, be an obedient child. It was so, so much stunning when you put all of Colossians together and you see Paul starts with the cosmic and then he gets to the mundane. He starts with the creation of the universe and then we end up in our homes and how we interact with one another as he teaches us that the lordship of Jesus Christ is expressed in the day-to-day -day ordinary life. That is, you don't primarily show your Christianity in these great acts of, of suffering or, or these, these wonderful deeds of, of, of Christian courage. You show it on Monday morning and Thursday evening as you put anger to death, as you live out humility and compassion and kindness and gentleness as we've seen. What Paul is telling us is when Christ reigns in our heart, we become a new husband, a new wife, a new father and a new child. And as we'll see today, I think a new boss. And a new employee. We're studying this little last paragraph here at the end of Colossians chapter 3. These are called household codes. We find these in scripture. We find them outside of scripture, interesting enough. And uh, Paul here is laying out the duties of the household. And he has three couplings, doesn't he? he and, and in each coupling, he begins with the one without the authority. And so he talks to wives and then to husbands. He, then, he talks to children, then to fathers. He talks to slaves and then the master. 
And many think that Paul is actually giving praise to those who are in the subordinate position by putting them first. This would be unusual in outside of Scripture. And then once he addresses those without the authority, he then addresses those who have the authority. And almost in every time, whether he's talking to husbands or fathers or masters, he is forbidding them from the abusive use of the authority which God has seemed to entrust them with. Today, we see that he is speaking to slaves. Right, you see that in verse 22, slaves, obey, your, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. We might be surprised uh, to think about slaves as part of a household, but they would not. Uh, slaves were incorporated into their home. These were domestic slaves. Um, you'll also note, by the way, that uh, it's interesting that the instructions given to slaves is far more extensive than the instructions given to wives or husbands or fathers or children, for that matter, or masters. He spends uh, just a verse on, on any of those positions, but the, the instruction given to slaves is four or five verses, uh, which is somewhat interesting. It might be, just uh, in case you're curious, it might be that Paul is, is doing so because of a man named Onesimus, who we'll meet in chapter 4, verse 9. See, Onesimus is a runaway slave whose master is a member of this church. His master's name is Philemon. And, we're, and, and Paul writes the, the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon together. They're delivered together into the same church. The, the book of Philemon, a, a very small book of our, in the Bible, is given directly to this slave owner named Philemon. And we're going to discover when we study that book this fall that Paul wanted this slave Onesimus to be freed by his master in order that he might continue in the gospel ministry. And so perhaps Paul is emphasizing the role of slaves so extensively in order to deflect any kind of criticism that might be coming against him. Uh, he might, people might say, well, he's discouraging uh, the obedience of slaves. And you will see uh, he is very clearly not doing so. But that, of course, raises the question, you might wonder, shouldn't he be encouraging the disobedience of slaves? I mean, why, why would he not encourage slaves to be disobedient? And by the way, why are there slave owners in the church? That's also interesting, isn't it? So it might be helpful for us just to take a five minutes or so to consider uh, the slavery that's taking place in this, in this context and compare it to perhaps the slavery we're more familiar to. I, I will say the Bible does uh, seem to roundabout address the issue of slavery, but not nearly as directly as we might like. Paul here is, is clearly what we might call regulating slavery. I don't think he's endorsing slavery, but he's certainly regulating it. Remember, Moses regulated divorce in Deuteronomy 24. Not that he's endorsing it, but he's, he's laying out the stipulations so that it might not become abusive. The Bible never endorses slavery, by the way. It never, never, and you won't find a single place in the Bible where it encourages someone to go get a slave. Slaves are never presented as intrinsic into society, like marriage and children and government are. Uh, but, on the other hand, the Bible never comes out and denounces slavery. The Bible never calls it evil. Um, it never commands owners to free their slaves. The closest we get to is 1 Corinthians 7, which says it, uh, to slaves, if you can get your freedom, do so. Or 1 Timothy 1, which condemns slave traders. But the Bible never condemns slavery. And you might think, how is that actually possible? Well, slavery in the ancient world was radically different than the slavery that we're familiar with from the 16th and the 18th century around the Atlantic Ocean. It's far, far different. Not to say that I don't think it was an evil institution, I do, but it is uh, much significantly different from the slavery in which we're, we're aware of. For instance, the slavery that took place in this land and uh, other European countries, uh, the people, of course, you know, were forcibly taken to be slaves. That slavery was lifelong. It not only extended to their entire life, it extended to their children and their children's children. 
they were given most often menial tasks, very harsh and difficult jobs to do. And of course, chiefly, it was a racist institution. Right? Slavery was based entirely on race in America. So white people or Euro people of European descent own people of African descent or black people. You would not find in America, for instance, in the 17th century or the 18th century, for that matter, a black man owning a white person. That would not have happened, not even a single time. In fact, we know in the founding of our nation that white individuals were given full representation. Black individuals were given three-fifths representation. Right? So they're not quite fully human, but they're not quite fully animals. They're somewhere in the middle. It was, was an abhorrently evil institution. It should have no place amongst any civilized nation, let alone God's people. And it is therefore utterly shocking and dismaying that many who claim to know Christ treated people like this, owned slaves like this, supported such a system. Now I say that, that system is far different than what Paul is addressing here. The, the slaves in which he's talking to, very few of them would have been forcibly taken as a spoil of war most of them would either become slaves by two ways. One, uh, they would uh, expose their infants if they did not want them. Uh, and, and, and so people would go rescue those infants and, and bring them into their house. Sometimes they would adopt them. Sometimes they would make them slaves. But far more frequently, these individuals were people who had debt and sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off that debt. Okay? And, and, and moreover, um, they, they would, some people would sell themselves into slavery in order to get a better job. Slaves were often educated, skilled. Most of the doctors in this day were slaves. Teachers, government officials were slaves. Slaves in the Roman world can own property. Slaves could actually own slaves themselves in the Roman world. No, no, uh, moreover, it wasn't lifelong. You were usually freed by age 30. Certainly didn't extend to your children. And then the, perhaps the chief difference was race had nothing to do with slavery, to which Paul's referring to. All races had slaves, and all races were slaves, and many slaves had slaves of the same race as them. Uh, you, you couldn't tell anyone uh, by their skin color or any type of ethnic identity whether they're a slave or not. And there's certainly the idea of a racial superiority of one race over another had nothing to do with the slavery in which Paul is addressing. And so I hope you see there's significant differences there. But it was incredibly prominent in the Roman world, far more prominent in our country's history. Perhaps half the population were enslaved and the majority, some people think the majority of Christians were slaves. The majority of the members of this church, which Paul's addressing, might have been slaves, which is why he's giving instructions to slaves, because slaves would have been at the church service. So Paul turns and addresses them. And so I hope you see this is a complicated situation to which Paul is referring to. You say, well, why not call the end of, for the end of that slavery? Clearly that's not an appropriate situation. Well, as I mentioned, many slaves were slaves because of their debt. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you became a Christian and you immediately got out of debt? Right? That'd be cool. You know, you, you write a letter to Bank of America and sorry, I'm with Jesus now. I don't owe you what I, what I owe you. Right? I mean, so slavery in Paul's day was somewhat complicated, I think. American slavery, not complicated. I'm horrid evil. But Paul, there's a nuance. It's a difficult knot to untie. And so Paul may not call for the end of slavery here, but he certainly, I think, he's sowing the seeds of its demise. I think he's undermining slavery slowly. And we saw that if you just look back in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. Remember when we said here, that is in the church, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised, there's no slave or free for Christ is all and he is in all. In, other, in the church, we're all on equal footing. You, you don't get preferential treatment if you're a slave or, or if you're a slave owner. And here even we see in our text, he assumes the moral responsibilities to slaves. He gives them commands for things that they are 
to, to do and to obey. And I think Paul is simply, as we see, I think the rest of Scripture, and clearly the rest of the New Testament, in my mind at least, is seeking to transform individuals first and by extension society. He doesn't go right after society. We're, we're going to change people from the inside, and as people change, then culture will change. And certainly history bears that out, and certainly if you look into history of ancient Rome. And so Paul, I think, is telling these slaves, hey, don't rebel against your circumstances. Follow Christ in them. And I think, therefore, uh, what we're going to try to do this morning is think about how we can follow Christ in our circumstances. I think this passage will be helpful for us. Though we're not slaves or slave owners, I think as we think about the Roman slavery situation, we see some parallels between employment and those who manage individuals. I think, therefore, quite a number of principles can apply. I think this can apply to the workplace. But just don't think about work as a place where you earn money. I think this applies to those who in volunteer service, those um, who stay in home moms. I think this applies to students, to teenagers. Listen, I think you could glean implications from what Paul is saying here as we consider the Christian employee and the Christian employer. We begin, point number one here, the Christian employee. As Paul addresses slaves, we'll extend that to all who work. And he begins by telling us how we are to work and then why. So we might think of, of what Paul is going to address as the, the manner of our work and then the motive. Right? So what, what are we to do and, and why are we to do it? You see, first of all, that this seems to be a very comprehensive obedience. Once again, you know, verse 22, he says, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. In other words, do what is asked of you. You are to be dependable. You are to be faithful. You are not to be lazy. You are not to be cutting corners. I think by implication, when everyone else is surfing the internet at work, you're working. When everyone else is coming in late, you're showing up on time. You're doing your job. You're doing what is asked of you. That is what the Christian should do. should be obey in everything. You say, I don't like my job. Well, that's why they pay you, right? Okay. No, no one pays you to take a nap, okay? Right? No one pays you to eat peach pie, okay? Yes, please, I'll, I'll do that. I'll take that job. You don't get paid for that. You get paid to work, right? You don't do paperwork because you're addicted to paperwork. I just want more paperwork, right? It's not what you do. You're paid to do that. Now, some of you like your jobs. I certainly like my job. But for all of us, myself included, there are parts of our job we don't like, right? That we have to do parts we don't like. We do it because we get paid. In fact, I would suggest you, you don't pay me to preach. You pay me to answer email, okay? <laughs> I, 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 I preach for free. It's the email that's costing you all this money, okay? So we, we do, we, get, we, we were to do it. This is why we're, we made a contract, if you will. We said, we'll do this for this amount of money. We should keep our word. We should o obey in everything. And I think we see examples of this in the Bible, don't we? See Joseph there as a slave, isn't he? Taken, sold forcibly, and he is uh, dutiful and obedient to both in Potiphar's house and then to Pharaoh. Or what about Daniel, who's abducted as a teenager and, and treated as a slave? And yet he, he does his work so well that King Darius appoints Daniel over all others so that, quote, he would not suffer loss. That should be the case of the Christian worker. In fact, we see this not just in Scripture. It was uh, one example will be in 1904 at the Welsh Revival. There was a great revival in 1904, 1905 in the nation of Wales. About 100,000 people came to Jesus Christ, many of whom worked in the shipyards, and it caused a great deal of problems. All these people coming to Christ caused problems in the shipyard because over years these men have been stealing from the shipyard. Now they became a Christian, and they're actually returning what they have taken from their, their place of employment. 
And soon the shipyards, we know, became overrun with wheelbarrows and shovels and tools that they actually put up signs saying, please don't bring back what you stole from us. <laughs> Honest, one sign, I quote it. It says, if you have been led by God to return what you've stolen, please know that the management forgives you and wishes you to keep what you took. <laughs> we know from the history uh, of ancient Rome that the price for Christian slaves went up. Isn't that interesting? Man, if you're going to get a slave, you wanted a Christian. Should that not be the case? Right? You're going to hire a worker. I want a Christian because he's going to be diligent and faithful. In fact, you notice how comprehensive this is. He says, obey in everything. That's pretty all-inclusive, isn't it? What if, what if my boss is a jerk? What if he's unreasonable? What, what, what if he's incompetent? In everything. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Isn't that interesting? Right? So whether your, your boss or your employer is a Christian or not, whether they're difficult or kind, you are to obey. Many people, I think, sadly justify their dishonesty or their negligence at work because of the mistreatment of their boss or some, the burden of some ludicrous policy. That is not to be the case for the Christian. The Christian is to demonstrate how Christ has changed us by the way we go about our work. And so those of you who give yourself to it, has Christ changed the way you work? Is it good for the fame of Jesus that you are known as a Christian at your place of employment? It should be. I wonder if part of the problem that we struggle with is, is our view of authority. It seems to me that we have an uneasy relationship with authority, right? Whether it be government, home, church, workplace, we don't think well of authority in our culture anymore. And it seems like every TV show, every book I read, the authority, those who have power, are always the bad people, right? They're, they're always wrong, they're always to be rebelled against. I mean, when's the last time you saw a movie in which the authority was to be admired and appreciated and, and received with gratitude. We have in our country, in this land, in the West at least, have killed, I think, the idea of a benevolent authority. And so we need to be reminded of what God teaches us, that God has indeed given us authorities in our life, and he explains he has done so for our good, that a Christian should respect and submit to authority, including our employers, including our teachers. It is a comprehensive obedience. Secondly, he tells us it is to be a sincere obedience. As you read on in verse 22, he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Right? We're not to be eye uh, not to eye service, not to be people pleasers. In other words, your work doesn't change when your boss is watching. Right? Do you drive differently when the police officer is behind you? <laughs> yeah. Yes, we do, all right? Let's, we be honest there, okay? Do you work differently when your boss is there? Paul says that shouldn't be the case. Because you're not working to please your boss. You're not working by way of eye service. You can be trusted when no boss is around. We do know, I think, that Jesus spent some time before he became a preacher uh, as, a, as a carpenter, as a construction worker, as some type of manual labor. Do you think that Jesus, he told someone he's going to make a table with expensive wood and slipped in some inferior wood there and 
pocketed the difference? Do you think he ever worked six hours and billed for eight? I don't think so. Probably not. But you see, the Christian's not working for these things. The Christian isn't working for show. The Christian's not working even for a good evaluation from their boss. The Christian's not even working for a good grade in the classroom. Not that it's wrong to get a good grade. Not that it's wrong to get a good evaluation. That's just too low of a goal for the Christian. That's beneath us. After all, we should not be motivated by the fear of our boss or reward of money. Ultimately, though we're thankful for, for our boss and for money, but ultimately we should be motivated by our allegiance to the Lord. Is that what he says? With sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. We fear God more than our boss. And therefore we work because of that reality that we have with the Lord. And so it is to be a, a sincere and comprehensive obedience. And now as Paul turns to telling us why we should work this way, and he gives us two motivations to work this way. He says, first of all, it is a Christ-focused obedience, or I guess the third point under the Christian employee, a Christ-focused obedience. For you note verse 23, Paul tells us here, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So if Jesus were your boss, in other words, would you work differently? Well, I tell you, according to Colossians 3.23, Jesus is your boss. He is. You say, I have, I have a bad boss, therefore I'll be a bad employee. No, no, Jesus is your boss. And Jesus is a good boss. Right? So be a good worker. I think if you find a Christian who's not giving her best, you have found a Christian who has forgotten whom she works for. We, we submit to the boss that we have all the while really seeing the true master, the true uh, boss who stands behind him. In other words, we might understand that all of our work is given to the Lord, therefore all of our work is sacred. It might be helpful just to think about how Christian, Christianity has, has helped influence our understanding of work. It was in the day in which Paul wrote, the, the Greco-Roman day, when work was seen as a curse to overcome. We want to get rid of work. You know, the, the good life was lived by the gods up on Olympus who just lied around all day and drank ambrosia. That's the good life. Let's get past the curse of work into that life. Things changed in the medieval period when work was divided in half. And you had sacred work over here. And then you had what they called profane work or we might call common work over here. And in the medieval period, it wasn't the gods who lied around and did nothing. It was the pastors. It was the monks, it was the, it was the priests who, who spent their time contemplating and praying and preaching. And that was the sacred work. And all the commoners, well, the, they, they performed the necessary work, the common work, the profane work. So you had, you had sacred and common, or we might say sacred and secular. Well, it wasn't until the 16th century when the Protestant Reformation came that, that we developed what, I don't know if we use this term anymore. We remember that we used to call it the Protestant work ethic. That came out of uh, Germany and Martin Luther in the 16th century when he understood and the Protestant reformers understood that, no, no, we don't have sacred and secular work. All legitimate work is sacred because all work is to be given to God. And they begin to use this Latin word called vocation, which simply means calling. It's the Latin word for calling. And so your vocation was your calling by God to do your work. And so it didn't matter if you're a preacher or you're a mechanic or you're a salesman or you're a housewife. It didn't matter. That was your vocation. That was what God had called you to do. So you could do any, you could be a student or a, or a, or a, or a, you know, a farmer or even a lawyer, believe it or not. And you're carrying out the calling unto the Lord, right? right? And the Puritans 
who came out of that theological tradition would, would call the workplace the sanctuary. Right? Isn't that interesting? As they offer their labor to God as worship. Well, sadly, things changed in the 17th century when this thing called the Enlightenment came. And, and work was still good, but it was secularized. We still use the word vocation, right? You use that word. It has nothing to do with divine calling anymore. Right? We took God out of it. And so worship and obedience and helping others was no longer the goal of work. What's the goal of work now, according to the Enlightenment? Right? It's money. Let's get money. What's the goal of work? The weekend. That's why I work, so I can get to the weekend. Right? It was Ben Franklin who said, early to bed and early to rise because God calls us to help our neighbors. Right? Because God calls us to do our work unto him. No, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I think today we sometime, somehow have taken that Greco-Roman and this enlightenment and put them together. It's like a secularized form of the Greco-Roman understanding that leisure is the goal, retirement is the goal. After all, life is about retiring in style. And work has become a curse, once again, to end as soon as possible. That is not how the Bible describes work for us. What does he say there in verse 23? Let this penetrate your heart. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. I think if there's one verse, if I, I, I may be overstating this, but, but not by much. If there's one verse that has changed the trajectory in my life, Perhaps greater than no other, it is Colossians 3.23. It's that verse right in front of me. Uh, I remember, as, a, uh, I, as you know, as you, I've shared my testimony, I barely graduated high school. It's almost a high school dropout. Stumbled into a state college. And as a 19-year-old freshman in college, my first semester, I remember reading Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, what, whatever, that's, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for me. And I remember, I can picture myself in my dorm room reading that. And I, I've been talking to God. So, God, am I to write papers as if I were giving them to Jesus? Am I to study this material as if I was worshiping you in studying and in preparing? And a radical, total transformation took place in my life. Because I began to understand that God wants us to give our labors to him as an act of worship. Right? I wonder if this might help you understand. Perhaps you spend your days... You feel like you're just shuffling meaningless amounts of paper. Maybe, maybe, maybe you spend your days folding laundry, right? Maybe, maybe you're, you're studying some irrelevant subject. I, don't you see you're doing more than that? You're serving Jesus. That's what it says. You're giving this to Jesus. As one author put it, it is then possible for the housewife to clean the house as if Jesus Christ were the honored guest. It is possible for the teacher to educate children and for doctors to treat patients and for salesmen to help clients and shop assistants to serve customers and accountants to audit books and for secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. So my friends, you may not have the job you want, but remember, you do have the boss you want. You work for Jesus, and that might just change the, the way you work. And as if that were not a motive for enough, notice he promises to reward us for doing so. For we see lastly here the rewarded work. As we read in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. You are serving the Lord Jesus. We see that once again as if it hasn't hit that 
hard enough, uh, but he, uh, this beautiful promise, you are going to be rewarded. Your work's going to be evaluated, and you'll be rewarded in accordance. So the parallel passage in Ephesians 6 says, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Now, how incredible must have this verse been to slaves when they heard it read? Because slaves don't get an inheritance, right? Oh, yes, they do. If they are in Christ, evidently. And I can almost see them looking at each other in this little church in Colossae. One slave to another. Did he say we're going to get an inheritance for the work that we did? Yeah. That's exactly what he said. And I pray that God would remind you that there is a great reward coming for those who labor well, as God calls us. But it works the other way, doesn't it? As we see in verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Now, we're not quite sure who he's referring to in this phrase, the wrongdoer. Is he talking to slaves and warning them of neglecting their duties? He might be. But you notice he's about to talk to masters in the very next verse. Maybe he's warning masters who fail to treat their slaves properly. I wonder if he puts it right here in between slaves and masters because he wants to do both. Right? You, you slaves, you, you, you steal from your boss or do a poor job. You think you're going to get away with it. But there's an accounting coming. Masters, you mistreat those under your authority. You're, you also are going to have to answer to Jesus. For we read in James 5, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of harvest. After all, as we see there in verse 25, God shows no partiality. There's no favoritism with God. He's not, God is not impressed with your title. He's not dismayed by your lack of it. He seeks your heart. He seeks your obedience. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Which brings us, of course, and we'll be quick here, for there's only one verse the Christian employer, the Christian employer. Notice what Paul says here in verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your slaves fairly, justly and fairly. Uh, this, by the way, is a radical instruction in the ancient world. This would never be commanded of masters, suggested of masters, that they should treat the, have such limitations on how they treat their slaves. Slaves didn't have any expectation of justice or fairness while they were enslaved. And he says, treat them justly, that is according to God's standard. He says, treat them fairly, that is with equality. I think this might be helpful for us in management or those of us who are employers. There's a great incentive, isn't there? A constant pressure to enhance the bottom line. Just get more and more and more. And we might be tempted, therefore, to treat our employees without fairness. Treat our employees without justice. And God said it should not be so amongst Christian bosses and Christian companies and Christian managers. In fact, he gives us a motivation for why we should do this. As you read on in verse 1, say, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Christian masters, Paul says, you have a master too. So even slave owners are slaves themselves. They are slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? You are under God's authority, right? And you should therefore act as a master, as, as your master has treated you. Right? As, how has your master treated you, Christian? He treated you justly? Fairly? Certainly. Far more than that. He's even been treated us graciously. 
Right? He used his authority to lay down his life. Did he not say, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own authority that I might take it up again. Is that therefore not the ultimate kind of paradigm, the ultimate example of how authority rightly used is to be exercised by the Christian? I wonder if the way you treat those whom you manage resembles in any way the way the Lord treats you. You, you might be helped just to think, what can, what's one thing you could do this week that your authority in the workplace looks more Christ-like? Treat them fairly and justly. Well, it's interesting to see this applied. So I'm going to ask you as we uh, get ready to close uh, this morning, turn over to Romans 16. We actually see something of this happening in Romans 16. It's a wonderful passage that most people skip over, but it's a particular interest to me. It's the final greetings. Paul lists name after name after name. But there's much to be gleaned if we dig a little deep. And so Romans 16, uh, we have these individuals, uh, Paul sending greetings to the Christians in Rome. He's writing a letter to the Roman Christians. And he has a bunch of people with him, and they want to say hello as well. One of the men who want to say hello is a man named Tertius, as you look in verse 22. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. You say, wait a second, I thought Paul wrote the book of Romans. Well, Paul dictated the book of Romans to a manuensis or a scribe, and the scribe would write it down. And the scribe who wrote the book of Romans, as Paul dictated it, was a man named Tertius. And so he gets to the end of the letter, and Tertius says, hey, I just want to say hello too. I greet you too. Um, I, Tertius, greet you. Now what's interesting about Tertius is his name. You see, in the Roman slavery situation, quite often a slave would be named according to his position in the household. So the chief slave would be Prinus, and the second-in-command slave would be Secundus, and the third uh, command slave would be a man named Tertius. The fourth would be Quartus. The fifth would be Quintus. And so on and so on. And so we know that this man, this scribe, is actually a slave. Uh, he is, in, in his home, he is third in rank. Well, you read the very next verse, and it says, Gaius, who is host to me uh, and to the whole church, greets you. Okay, so here's a man named Gaius, who's evidently wealthy enough in order to host the entire church, as well as keep Paul around as a house guest. Okay, reading on, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. So here's another slave. We've got Tertius, and now we've got Cortus, and Tertius is third, and Cortus is fourth. And many people think that these were, might have been, perhaps were, slaves in Gaius' house, this wealthy man who hosted uh, the, the entire church. And so it's somewhat stunning there, isn't it, just to see these men listed. And you've got slave and free, and they're, they're just listed one after another as if there's no difference amongst them. Um, in fact, it was Donald Barnhouse, the great preacher of old, who imagined an interview with these two slaves, Tertius and Quartus. He, he imagines, it's just fiction, but it's fun to think about. He says, one day Paul came into our house, and our master Gaius was transformed. He began to be kind to us. Soon he had Paul tell us about Christ. For two years, Paul came off into our house. It made more work for us to get the bread and wine ready on Sunday, but it was delightful. They broke the bread, and we began to eat from the same loaf as our master. Who would have thought? They filled the chalice with wine, and our master sipped it and smiled as he handed it to us. Day after day, everything was transformed. He put his hand on us and cried as he spoke to us of the grace of God in Christ that had saved all of us. He said that, that though he was our master, he too had a master in Jesus. And he wanted to treat us in the way that his master Jesus had treated him. 
glorious picture, I think. See, Christ is our master. But of course, he's more than that, isn't he? It's somewhat paradoxical, but Christ is also our servant. In fact, Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, wasn't it, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There, Jesus says, I didn't come for you to serve me. I came to serve you. And how is it that you'll serve us? Well, I will give my life. I will die in order to pay a ransom price that you might be redeemed, which we believe as Christians to be the core of our Christian faith. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please understand that beyond everything that we just considered today, we believe ultimately at the very heart of, of what we believe is that we have been served by Jesus in his death for us. He died in our place and was punished because of our sin and not because of his sin. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And uh, this is the, the, the joy of the gospel of the you know, Christian message. And I would love to be able to speak to you more about that if you have any questions of what it means to be saved by Christ. And now that he has served us, Jesus served us in this way by going to the cross, because of that service, he now becomes our Lord. Right now we bow our knee to him as King Jesus, the resurrected Lord, and therefore whatever you do, work heartily, not as for the Lord, not for men. You see, these are not simply just a, a list of behaviors to do, okay, more things to do, more commands to do. No, my friends, this is simply a response to grace. We are not and never will tell you to just gird up your loins and go out on Monday and try to be a better worker or whatever it is. No, that's like taping fruit to a tree. That's going to get old quickly. You need to root yourself in what Jesus has done for you. Look at the price he has paid. Look at where he's, the, the love he's extended, the grace in which he's offered, the guidance in which he, he gives, the, the place in which he has taken you. And you bask in those truths and you will find that this fruit begins to naturally bear in your life. I get to worship Jesus tomorrow, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 2 o'clock or whatever it might be. What a joy that is to the Christian. Not a burden, not a labor. If you understand simply that your Christian life is a response to God saving you. Soon, I believe, your worship, your work rather, will become a worship to him. No matter what you do. Kind of like uh, Sarah. You'll forgive me for sharing a story I shared with you years ago, but many of you are new. The story of Sarah is told by uh, her pediatrician, a man named Dr. David. Uh, da Dr. David's wife taught Sarah's Sunday school class at their church, and one Sunday she was teaching the children that they ha all have a role to play in serving. Dr. David writes, the kids quietly listened to my wife's words, and the lesson ended. Uh, there was a short moment of silence, and finally a little girl, Sarah, spoke up, Teacher, what can I do, she asked. I, I don't know how to do many useful things. Not anticipating that kind of response, my wife quickly looked around and spotted an empty flower vase on the windowsill. Sarah, you can bring a flower and put it in that vase, she said. That would be a useful thing, and God would be pleased with the difference that that would make in this room for everyone who sees it. Sarah frowned. But that's not important. My wife replied, well, it is if you do it for God. Sure enough, the next Sunday, Sarah brought in a dandelion she had picked and placed in the vase. In fact, she continued to do so each week without reminders or help. She made sure the vase was filled with some bright flower Sunday after Sunday. When my wife told our pastor about Sarah's faithfulness to the small task, he took the vase in the sanctuary and placed 
next to the pulpit and used it as an illustration for faithful serving. Well, the next week, uh, David, uh, her pediatrician, got a call from Sarah's mother. She was worried that Sarah seemed to have less energy than usual and didn't have the appetite that she usually had. David continues the story saying, I made room in my schedule to see Sarah the following day. After Sarah had been put through a battery of tests, I sat numbly in my office with Sarah's paperwork on my lap. The results were in. Sarah had leukemia. On my way home, I stopped to see Sarah's parents so that I could personally give them the news. Sitting at the kitchen table, I explained that nothing could be done to save her life. Time pressed on and Sarah became confined to bed and then it came another telephone call from Sarah's mother asking me to come to her. I dropped everything and rushed to their house. After a short examination, I knew that Sarah did not have long to live. That was Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, church started as usual. The singing, the sermon, and for me, the sadness. Near the end of the sermon, the pastor suddenly stopped speaking as he stared at the back of the auditorium. Everyone in our church turned to see what he was looking at. It was Sarah. Her parents had brought her in for one last visit. She was bundled in a blanket with a bright flower in her hand. They walked to the front of the church where her vase was still perched by the pulpit, and she put the flower in the vase and placed a piece of paper beside it. The following Thursday, Sarah passed away. The pastor asked me to stay behind after the funeral service. As we stood together at the cemetery, and while everyone walked to their cars, he said, Dave, I got something you ought to see. And he pulled from his pocket the piece of paper that Sarah had left by the vase. Holding it out to me, he said, I want you to keep it. I opened the folded paper to read, to read in, in pink crayon what Sarah had written. It was simply this. Dear God, this vase has been the biggest honor of my life. Sarah. I would suggest to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the way we are to live and to work. As a Christian, our whole life is to be devoted to God because of what he has given to us in Jesus. That we would do even the little things, even the simple things, like going about our work for God, caring for children for God, teaching a Bible study for God, putting a flower in a vase for others to see for God. That we would be people who are transformed by the grace of our Savior so that whatever we do, we work heartily as for the Lord and not for us. Our Father, we're thankful for the work of Christ and its far-reaching impact. Chief, among his work is that we, we are saved. We are forgiven of our sins. We will live forever with a holy God whom we call Father in a new earth, a new heaven. And yet, there must be something of that transformation in our life in these days. And so we will busy ourselves with things this afternoon, there is no doubt. Busy ourselves on our day off tomorrow and then Tuesday back to work. And yet I pray there might be just something different about it. I pray that we might be more mindful that you ultimately are the one whom we serve, that we would indeed do all things for your glory, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.